You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Mara Kalman. Hello, can I please speak with Myra Kelman? This is Myra. Myra, it's Paul calling. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? I am doing very well, despite the weather. It's really... Well, this, yeah, despite the weather or, or because, because of the weather? I mean, you know, really, it's, it's, it's lousy here. And I, I, I seem to, to, to know or to note that you, you're doing a book about the weather. Yes, um, I, the weather has always been something, of course, that I noticed. I think other people have too. And of, and of course, when I wake up in the morning, I look at the weather and see what's what's in store. So Daniel Handler and I have uh, collaborated on a book together with the Museum of Modern Art about called Weather Weather, and it's paintings and photographs and and Daniel's writing about what it is about the weather that makes us feel whatever it is. What is it about the weather that makes you feel whatever it is, and what is it about the weather that makes Daniel feel whatever it is? Since I haven't seen the book, and I don't think it's yet out. Yeah, it isn't, I think it'll be out in, in October or November or something like that. Um, it makes us feel insecure and secure. It makes us feel all things. It makes us feel everything, any emotion that anybody could feel, which is, I suppose reasonably inclusive because you know i i'm i'm always amazed you you say you you look what's in store i'm always amazed by the forecast because people who forecast the weather are probably the only people who can keep their jobs so they're so often wrong <laughs> many people are I, I don't know if that's true i think many people are wrong you know a lot of the time but the language also of weather is really quite amazing, and the vocabulary of weather is also very intriguing. So it's just, it's just funny to read the descriptions of what, what's going to happen in, in a, actually in a, very lyrical, in a very lyrical way. You know, um, well, for the New York Times, that's what I'm reading. And it's very like, lyrical and eccentric. Like, can, I think they're can, having a lot of fun trying to come up with what to say. Can you give me an example of something that you remember? Uh, well, the, uh, for the principles of uncertainty, I um, used the weather report every day for the month that I was posting the piece. Um, and uh, let's say September 6th was turning brighter, fog will form toward daybreak. I mean, really. Yeah. <laughs> but but what more do you need? But I don't know, Myra. I mean, we need more. We need more, and we need less, and and we need it all. And I'm, I'm wondering how, how your moods are affected by the weather, because I think that some people are tremendously affected by it, and it it makes them either joyful or depressed or something in between. And I'm wondering what effect the weather and different weathers have on you and what kind of weather you you crave for well i wake up you know i wake up with internal weather and the sense of so i'm carrying you know there are many weathers going on at the same time so i'm carrying my internal what you know what i'm thinking about what i'm worried about what i'm happy about and then the counterpoint is uh, is it humid where i'm going to feel sluggish and like today for instance and, and, you know, just have a sense of lethargy? Or is it going to be crisp and bouncy, and will I have a sense of energy and, and optimism and brightness? So, yeah, the weather very much affects. And, of course, because I love to go out and walk so much, I, and I couldn't go for my walk this morning in the park, and, um, and which brings us, of course, to morbid ruminations. It does bring us to morbid ruminations, and you, you sent me, um, I think, intentionally, uh, an article for, of the New York Times about how walking affects our moods and may change the pattern of our brains. And I think you sent it to me intentionally because you think that I should maybe perhaps consider taking more walks. 
Maybe, perhaps, only because those of us, and maybe, and you know, maybe I'm being presumptuous, those of us who think too much, and I, and I truly believe that's a disease, uh, it's minimized. <laughs> it's like we're always looking for what to do to not have to think, or at least I am. And one of the ways to do that is to walk, and especially in this piece it says that walking in the park, walking through green, uh, turns off a part of your brain that is specifically devoted to morbid rumination. And that morbid rumination, which, which takes a lot of energy and a lot of the day, actually, a lot, it takes a lot of my day, I think that the way to combat that is just to walk and to look and to observe and to really be incredibly happy with whatever it is that passes our landscape and the fact that we are walking and that we are somewhere. And you, and you know, um, well, you, you know for a fact that I've, I've spoken many, many, many times uh, to, to the film, German filmmaker Werner Herzog, who truly believes that we must travel by foot. He doesn't call it quite walking, though um, I did send him at some po point the thorough um, essay on walking, and he did respond to it. But walking by foot is, in his view, nearly a moral imperative. It's also the way in which, if we encounter other people, and we go from place to place, if we've come from one village to another, having walked, we are the bearers of stories. People want to know where we came from and what we're doing where we are now. Right. Which I think is magnificent. It's magnificent in every way, and it also gives, the, gives everything a thread that, and, and, and it's fleeting. I mean, there's, there's something about the, that part of it also, that you're not stuck in one place having to have a very long conversation. That's right. Or a long relationship. You're moving through in a very graceful way, sometimes, and, and having fleeting, what we call superficial, which aren't superficial at all, interactions with people. And that, those moments are, they're really sublime. So do you walk every day? Yes, of course. And Not as much, some, days, some days more, some days less, but yes, every day is walking. Every day is a walking day. But a walking day for you is also, I would say, co-substantially connected to the work you do. So even though you may not be thinking, walking and working come together. Because it, uh, well, do they? Maybe I shouldn't say that they do. They do, they, you know, when I was, I guess, maybe in my early 20s, I had a very clear picture of what my life was going to be like. I knew, I knew from the time I was an 8-year-old or 9-year-old that I would write, and later on I would add painting, and then I would get married and I would have children, but that my work and my life would be the same. There wouldn't be a distinction. I wouldn't have to compartmentalize. And that traveling through the world... And making it be my work, making it, you know, showing what I observe as a journalist, as a as a writer, as an artist, that was my work, and it was clear to me. So I've been determined to do that. Sometimes better, sometimes worse, but that's that's been the, my life. Well, also because what what I'm alluding to is that a lot of your work, um, let's take the principles of uncertainty, for instance, are. Uh, connected to bumping into people, following people, being on their trail, noticing things that are happening in the city. I think of, of also that chapter in Alexandra Horowitz's book, um, you know, which is also about walking through the city. It's something that inspires you to connect to the city in a particular way, to New York in this case, but not only to New York. When you were in Italy, you, you went into every possible church you could possibly go into. I wanted to see people praying. Why? Because the, the worry or the wonder or the tragedy of, of thinking, not thinking, believing that this is it, there is no God, and there is no help, and there is no before, and there is no after. It's amazing to me to look at people praying 
and not mockingly, but to see what is it that they are finding in this moment? What is it that they, who are they talking to really, and what is the expectation? So I think that, you know, walking with that kind of expert, I mean, looking at people with compassion and, and, and tenderness is something that, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, amazes me. So, uh, it's, it's always a question of finding finding meaning and hope in a place where you don't think any really exists uh, subjectively. Myra, you, you, your, your life is seemingly incredibly full for the moment. Not that it hasn't been full every moment, but it, it would seem that particularly now there's so many things going on. You, uh, you're writing this book that is, or you've written this book, uh, drawn with, with Daniel Handler. You're also doing a, an exhibition, which I want you to talk about at, at, at the Met. Uh, that, <clears throat> that exhibition originated at my son Alex's museum, which is called Museum. It's uh, called M-M Museum. Two M's in the front and two M's in the back. And it is a, a museum in a defunct elevator shaft in an alley in New York City on Cortland Alley. And it's one of those fleeting, again, those things that don't really exist in New York anymore because real estate is just too valuable. So he's managed to make this teeny museum of odd and eccentric collections and... Of, of humanism and human endeavor in this space. And one of the ex exhibits that he and I collaborated on was a recreation of my mother's closet. I call it my mother's underwear closet to make it more intriguing, but it has more than underwear in it. My mother only wore white, and she was, that's a, you know, a superficial observation, but she was an extraordinary person, and we loved her madly and, and, and was very irreverent and funny and beautiful. So we, when she died, we kept all her things. We recreated her closet in this alleyway, a pristine, beautiful closet, and it's now going to go to the Met. So my mother's underpants and bra and other things and her linens and clothing are going to be installed in the American Wing at the Met. Opening that, in March. Um, that, that's extraordinary. It, it is. It's actually, it's an extraordinary leap for the curator. Uh, Amelia Peck is the curator at the American Wing, and when she came to see the closet, she said, talking to Alex about where it might go, and she said, I think I have a, an idea of where it might go. I think I have a place. And so it's going to be the first time, really, that they're, that they're making an exhibition not based on wealth or provenance of some kind of incredible history. It's a simple woman who traveled from Belarus to, to Israel, to New York, got divorced, got her own apartment, and led her own life at that point. And it's really extraordinary. And everything was, you know, um, completely in total order. So she was creating her own life, her own order, in this moment of her, of her um, independence. I mean, the sheer also folly of contiguity, the fact that this exhibition of your mother's uh, um, intimate clothing and other, other uh, items of clothing will be at the Metropolitan Museum, close to collections which are inspired by wealth and provenance. Right. And that, I think, is so interesting. Comment that people will be going from one to another, wondering also, you know, in what way is your mother's closing part of an art museum's exhibition? And they're putting it in between, because it's in the American wing, it's, it's living in between art and history and social commentary and any other labels that you can think of putting into it. But it really, it, it really trends, you know, it, 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 it covers so much, so many different areas and um, and roads. It takes you on so many different roads. I hope. Are you? Are you? I mean, what feeling does it does it inspire in you that this is happening at the Met? In other words, are you? Does it amuse you in some way? Um, um, 
I mean, what is a what is an emotional reaction you have to showing this often in this way? Is it is it? But it's hilarious. It's abs- I mean, I'm giddy with joy, and I'm, and my son Alex and I just we, you know we go to a meeting at the Met. Yeah. Look at each other. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we say this cannot be really happening. You pinch yourself. The thing about that is that it. It, it came from such a true and, and, and loving place. And I don't, I don't mean that every true and loving piece of art ends up at the Met. And this is an extraordinary opportunity. I mean, I'm grateful beyond measure. But something about this story, something about this woman and the way that we reacted to her, is, uh, it's incredibly compelling and uh, just full of great whimsy, great heart, and, um, you know, and maybe a, some amount of intelligence. So, yeah, but we're, you know, we're flabbergasted. And we, you know, we're, I'm ho- you know, March 6th has not arrived. March 6th of, 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 uh, of next year, 2017. 2017. Yeah. So we only will know that it's happening when we're standing there and uh, serving chopped liver hors d'oeuvres to people at the opening. You will? Well, we hope to. I remember when you when you served cakes after one of our events at, yeah. at the oh. library. Just uh, that was such a magnificent moment. Right. So serving Heavenly. serving serving cakes in one of the long halls of the New York Public Library. But that also reminds me so much of possibly one of my 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 favorite drawings of yours. Um, again, inspired totally by your your mother, is how she viewed the world, and in particular how she viewed the United States and Canada. She, you know, we uh, came from Israel in 1954 to New York, and I was very young. I started school. I learned English really quickly. She took me to the library, and we just went through from A to Z, and I, I learned to read and to speak very quickly, as little children do. And, um, but, so it was very, imp- education was incredibly important to her, and culture was incredibly important to her, but it was never presented in such a way that you actually had to know anything, or remember anything, or provide anybody with any information of, on any level at all. And we never had any normal conversations in the home, so I don't know whether you'll be able to show this, but the map, when I was doing a project... I will, I will, I will make sure that we do. So I asked people to draw a map of the United States because it's a challenging country to draw. Many, many states. I think there are 52. And so she sat down. By far, she made the most interesting one. So she sat down and drew this circle and then filled it with the most ridiculous stuff. Texas and California were under Canada. Florida and Hawaii were on the East Coast. She had Tel Aviv, Lenin, Jerusalem. And through the center of a great empty area. She writes, sorry, the rest unknown, thank you. Fantastic. I think I, I, I have it on my wall, and I, and I thank her every day for being the kind of person that allows the, the children that she had to be who they are. And that's uh, an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. It is, very, it is very difficult to do, and it's very difficult not to... The hardest thing to do is to let them be. Yeah, how, do, how does one do that? I don't I mean, know, and she also, and the and the other message of that is unconditional love, which we don't have to go down that road right we now. We don't have to go down that road, but w- but what was the line that I so love and can't quite remember that whenever you have the occasion not to say something, don't yeah. say what 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 is the exact line? It's, uh, the line is never miss an opportunity not to say something. Uh, that that was advice given to me about ch- raising children that just. Many times when you have a comment, just don't make it. So uh, that is difficult. Very difficult. Although, but it's an amazing thing. To, when you do follow it, it's extraordinary. And it relieves a lot of the pressure off of everybody because, you know, what, what do we, how, how do we even know what we're doing most of the time? How do we know? And I, I think in, in that is one of the things that I'm I'm most taken by when when being with you and when thinking about you, Myra, is the the principles of uncertainty are also the principles of being uncertain how we react in the world and what what we hold dear and are we right to hold this dear and is the world a joyous place or is it at the same time a completely tragic and catastrophic place? And all of these things inhabit us at the same moment. All at once. 
that's completely true. That takes a while to figure out. It does. You know, I'm curious about, about the comment you made about not only your mother's map, but the fact that you said she held culture in such high regard. How did that express itself? What kind of culture? And how did that then translate and influence you? Well, I said earlier that we, we didn't buy any books. That wasn't part of our... Uh, that, that just wasn't what we did. But we went to the library and read a tremendous amount. So reading... And, you know, coming from Russia and all of the literature that they read and they... was part part of the texture of things. So reading was really important. She took us to museums. We had a subscription to the opera, to the Philharmonic. Um, we traveled a great deal. And um, she... You know, I remember when we were in Rome, I think I was, she took us to Rome, and we stayed at the Excelsior Hotel, this really fancy hotel, for one night. That was a mistake. We left quite quickly. And when we were sitting at dinner, a man came with a, a you know, black tunic and a big gold medallion carrying a big black book, and she said, oh, my God, it's a priest coming to talk to us. And it was the sommelier coming to ask us, to ask my mother if she wanted to have any wine. And it was really one of those moments of complete disconnect. We had no idea where we were. We had no idea what we were doing there. But that sense, I mean, it was also funny, but, um, but the, the, uh, just being open to all of those things was really fantastic. And then, of course, I took piano lessons and ballet lessons and uh, went to music and art for music. So all of that was really encouraged. And she, she encouraged, she wanted you to, to be curious. She wanted you to be reading and, and looking, but not necessarily reacting to, to what movie you saw or what book right. you read. She didn't ask you, what did you think about this book? Never. There was never, what do you think about this in our entire history of my family life? I find that extra. Uh -huh. I find that extraordinary. We barely spoke to. I mean, what's really wonderful is that there really wasn't that much conversation. I, I was probably the most talkative one in the family. My father was away a lot. He was a businessman who traveled around the world. He'd be gone half the year, not not in one, you know, not in one swoop. But he he was gone a lot. So the women were left to their wonderful own devices. And um, I, you know, I had a, I, I, I was funny and I was curious and I was happy. So I was easy to be around and probably easy to influence, but I really, I remember sitting in a tree reading when I was, I don't know, maybe seven or eight. In a tree? In Riverdale. In a t sitting in a tree in Riverdale in, at the Henry Hudson Park, which is still very much a very nice park, and um, with a big statue of Henry Hudson overlooking the river in, in, um, in the Bronx. You know, Myra, you, you drew, you were mentioning going to, to the library and um, going from letter A to letter Z, you, you drew possibly one of my um, favorite photographs. I mean, it's hard to explain exactly how, how you work, but maybe you can tell us, called Blitz. It's a photograph that is tremendously important to me. Where Well, maybe you should describe it. You should describe it and then... Tell us a little bit why why you decided to draw that because I think in a way it brings about both um, the the strengths and power of the the force that keeps culture together and the destruction that it often um, that often threatens it. It's a photo taken in 1940. Uh, in London, uh, after a bombing raid, and a, I believe it's a bookstore. It might be a library room, but I think it's a bookstore. It's completely demolished. Beams have fallen. Everything has crashed down, except some walls of books are remaining. And in the middle are a few men in overcoats and hats, calmly leafing through books as if nothing had happened, as if there was absolutely no problem at all. And and besides it being and it's an anonymous photograph, there's no uh, no credit. So here is a moment of absolute disaster, absolute tragedy, and in the bigger tragedy of what's going on in the world of the Holocaust and World War Two and Hitler. And and here we are in a little room that's destroyed, picking out a book, 
plucking it from the shelf and looking at it and reading and saying, you know what, it's, it's, it's going to continue. You know, we go on. We, we just go on. Well, I, I, I think of, of Churchill being advised to close down the British Museum and the British Library and the symphony when the bombing started. And he said, no, 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 we are fighting this war in order to keep these places open. I think of him, I think of him every single day, really? multiple times a day. Really? I have a photo of him on the wall. Uh, yeah, he was, uh, of course, he was an extraordinary man who is, inspiring in many ways and never 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 give up what did he say never, yes never, yes never. yes something of that nature something like that and and of course so I, it's good to remember that because often i think oh oh give up give up already give it's, up already it's okay. it's, it's enough already enough. <laughs> but you know what is so extraordinary and again we'll, we'll, we'll make sure that that photograph is, a, is available and your drawing of it I think it would be interesting to see the photograph and the drawing and how you go from one to the other um, is that the men in that bookstore or in that library are looking nearly peacefully uh, at the books that are still on the shelf wearing their bowler hats. Right. So all the the kind of style perturbed, yeah. Yeah. Is is not uh, is not disturbed despite the, the the terror of there not being a roof and and the world seeming seeming to come to an end, but not really. Um you always wonder what the limits are of your of, of what you can take. Yes. But it is personally or globally what is it that's going to make me say, uh, you know, as I said, enough already, or I, I can't, I'm, you know, I, I don't have hope left. And then you can understand that there are moments when you don't have that, and then you, you resurrect or you revive by something. Something happens that makes you say, ah, okay. Well, I, I keep thinking of, of the, the two, I mean, as you know, I'm, I'm a quotomaniac, and I can't, I can't really stop quoting, but there are two two quotations that I keep in mind. One, the line by Kafka where he says, there's hope but not for us. And then the other line of, of Beckett, of course, I can't go on, I will go on. And both of them are, are so important and they're important to keep them available to, to, to oneself and one's life at every, any given moment. But you're also... At this moment in time, you're also on a journey that has already lasted for some years, which you call your your Proustian pilgrimage. <laughs> and I'm wondering, you know, what is that Proustian pilgrimage? That is that is coming to the right thing at the right age. That is knowing what you're supposed to be doing. And what I what I realized I was supposed to be doing was to read Proust with somebody who could guide me and a group of people who would be sitting together in a room, meeting once a month. Bridget Brine is our leader. She's a wonderful woman who has taken us in this. It's eight year. I think it's going to be an eight-year process because we only, it's, it's slow reading and close reading, 50 pages a month, and we are in year five. That's extraordinary. Sorry, yeah. And it's something, and it actually, I'm going tonight. For the, for, we, have a summer, we have the summer off to reread parts of it so we can refresh and understand more. And, of course, I think there's nothing better that's ever been written on the planet Earth, ever. That's my small opinion. So, except, except I imagine that if I pushed you a little bit, you might say there are some other things that are truly deeply inspiring to you. Let's say, for instance, Robert Walzer. Yes, Walzer and Siebel. I mean, there are many people who I adore. Completely adore, and uh, Walter is one really dear to my heart. Sibald, you said also. Yes, Sibald, Nabokov. Um, but there's something epic about this many volumes. Um, you know, volume reading, and I'm sure there are groups all over the city. People who are I don't know, either struggling, happy, or sad. I remember when I. So much a cliche. I remember when I sent you once a quotation that then ended up in a beautiful artwork you did of Proust writing mm -hmm. a, a letter about an umbrella. 
she had written this letter to a countess that uh, you know could could she possibly look for the for the umbrella and then send it back to him and then the PS was oh never mind I found the umbrella and it was you know the most wonderful funny by the way the books are incredibly funny and it's something that is very lovely to to be part of and and so often missed because people feel oh my god it's you know yeah. 5,000 pages or 3,000 pages. I don't know even how long it is. But I love the fact that you're reading this incredibly epic long book over an epic long time, as if you were having, you know, a pro protracted psychoanalytical session. I mean, something that will just last for a very long time. And the person who started the book will be different than the person who finishes the book yes. by virtue not only of the journey taken, but the years in between. That is incredible. You know, I always say, if this truly is, reading him replaces, I see being in a mental institution, but maybe not for everybody, but certainly being in therapy on one level, this is my therapy and all, and the answers that I'm looking for, even though I can have days of darkness and despair, but the answers that I am, that it gives me from this book, which keep changing, uh, which is another part of the whole story, uh, are, are, are so invaluable. I can't believe it. So. Myra, have you read? Um, the tiny little book of Proust on reading? No, I haven't. Oh, you must. I get it? Yes, you must. You must immediately go to the Strand um, right after our call, I, or as soon as you possibly can, certainly before playing Bridge tomorrow, which we can talk about. But um, it's, well, a, it's a small little book. Before the Strand, I have to go to the to my dance rehearsal, which we should also... We, should, we will also talk about in a moment. But On Reading is a preface that Proust wrote to a translation that he more or less did, a bit less and more. His English was not particularly great, so he got the help of a woman named Marie Nordlinger, who helped him translate a very short book of, of Ruskin called Sesame and Lilies, which is a book about reading. So it's Proust writing an essay on reading, on reading, and on the, uh -huh. and on the virtues of reading. And the first line, which I'll try to say from memory, is something like, there are perhaps no days of our childhood we lived so fully as those we thought we spent without living them, those we spent with a favorite book. And he goes on to say that the book he read, it mattered less what it was than where he read it, how often he was interrupted. And he talks there about how, how he hoped that he wouldn't be hearing his mother or aunt say, now it's time for lunch. And the books we remember, we remember, we remember perhaps less the books themselves and the locations than the smell around us. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. I think it, it will speak to you, and it has an advantage, which may also be a disadvantage, but it has the advantage of being 40 pages long. And it's before La Recherche. It, when he was writing it, his father said that when he decided he wouldn't go to law school, his father said... Um, you know, you really should be doing something important and which will pay your way in the world. And he said that anything else than writing literature would be lost time. Which, of course, is incredible considering à la recherche du temps perdu, in search of lost time. Myra? I'm I'm on my way there. My my brain is already heading. Okay, you you you. So so tell me tell me about uh, your dance rehearsal, and then tell me about the your discovery of bridge, and I I want to not let you go before we talk a little bit about storage. In order of well, I don't know I don't know in what order. In any order, is there an order? There, ballet, there is actually, this is why, you know, it's, it's trying to figure out how to spend energy in multiple directions and what that means and how 
what am I, you know, what am I doing? Every day the big question is, what am I doing? So one of the projects, which is really extraordinary, you know that I've danced the part of the duck. I know. Ronnie's uh, Peter and the Wolf. And in, so in, the choreographer was John Hagenbotham, who had been a dancer with Mark Morris and now has his own company. That was a production that Isaac Mizrahi did. Yes, at the Guggenheim. So I was this, you know, fabulous, delusional diva duck wearing a tutu, and I thought, this is what I have to wear from now on, a tutu. But at any rate, John said, why don't we do something together? And we were co-creating a ballet that's very loosely and very abstractly based on the principles of uncertainty, using, uh, and then I'm designing sets and costumes and and projections, and, and also performing in a hopefully not delusional diva way, but in a humble and strange and funny way and um, moving on the stage or sitting on a chair, some interaction at this point where that's what I'm doing. So we're in, we have a residency at NYU and so we're rehearsing and it's going to open at Jacob's Pillow next August and it's BAM next September. So it's a real thing. It's not something that I'm made up in my head. Well, it is, but. <laughs> you you made it up in your head, but it actually will be somewhere that make that what you made up will be somewhere on a stage. On the stage, and and for someone to critique, and for, you know, so there's there's equal parts terror and uh, and tremendous joy and excitement. So that's what you're you're going to do right after our call. You're going to rush to the rehearsal. Yeah, like a dancer does. How fantastic. Um, then what else were we going to talk about? We were going to talk about storage. I want to talk about storage. You, 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 you're writing and, and painting an essay for the Harvard Design Magazine about storage, about right. objects you, you, you collect and, and the memories they store. Now, as you, as you know, this is a subject so dear to me. I'm constantly thinking of Walter Benjamin's essay, Unpacking My Library. And just recently, I took out of storage. Um, I know that I ha I know I know not how many books I have, but I know that together they weigh about sixteen thousand pounds. And I know this because when I took this position at the library, the then director said, "Well, you know," as he was quite perplexed by the sixteen thousand pounds number and and the dollar figure it would cost to move them he said you know we have books here so that the the notion of of um of storage yeah. is the is same, of, course. No, of course not the same because they were not my books yeah. of course but tell me tell me and and now taking all of these books out of storage a very sad fact of it is that 80% of them were flooded so the books I so treasure are now destroyed, which is both incredibly sad and somewhat a relief in some way, but not really. I keep thinking of the Latin word for possession, which is impedimenta. But I'm, I'm, I'm talking too much. I want you to talk about storage. Yeah, but you know, this, it's, it's such an epic moment, and it's such, you're carrying all these thousands and thousands of pounds of beloved, beloved treasured books and now they're gone. And, and then the question is, so what, what do you have? Do you have the memories of them? Do you have the sorrow of not having them? What will time do? Time will, of course, diminish, I'm assuming, will diminish the sorrow. So the, the notion of collecting, and, and, and looking at a life, I'm looking back at my lifetime and how many years and how many things I have. And I'm, I'm, you know, I was going to say that when you called this morning, I was just standing in the living room staring at my stuff, wondering what it was and why it was there. And the essay is really about that. The issue that they're doing for the Harvard Design Magazine is about storage, I think, in the more pragmatic way. And I'm contributing an essay that's about storing memories. And what, what are we doing when we have all these things that remind us of all these things? Are they emotions that we want? Are they, are they memories that we need? And what are we without them? So I am always trying to eliminate things and, and clarify. And uh, it's an on, you know, and it, it'll never end. I mean, it won't, it won't, I won't be like a monk sitting in a cave with I don't know what, a lemon? I don't think that's going to happen. But we live in this world, and we probably have too many things just in general. So I don't know. I mean, I don't even, I've been thinking about your books, and I don't know what, to, I don't even know what to do about it.
Well, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, well, it. there's nothing really to do about it, uh, yeah. uh, it, it but there, there are all of those emotions you speak about, you know, there, there is the emotion of, of loss, um, deliverance, pain, sorrow, um, of course, just, and just loving the things, you, and and just loving the things you have, also. It's yes, and 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 the books, of course, are as I was mentioning earlier with that essay of uh, of Proust. You know, Proust says that the first edition of a of a book is the first edition in which we read that work. So that's his idea of a first edition. Mm-hmm. Wow! Isn't that powerful? It's something to take tonight to your class because it's, and I'm sure your teacher will know the exact reference, but I know that Proust speaks about the first edition of books. And, and when I look at, you know, when I look, for instance, m- most poignantly, and it is a book that survived, I look at, at Illuminations, the, the great, great uh, collection of, of Benjamin introduced by Hannah Arendt in America, with the most important essay you can read about, about storage and collecting, and not so much storage as what it means to have a library, which is Benjamin writing this, this essay called Unpacking My Library. And what he unearths as the books come out of the crates and what a flood of memories they bring to to him mm-hmm. and how it's both melancholic and elegiac at the same time yes true you know it's 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 very powerful it's very powerful and I wonder what's going to, what's going to become of those books when i'm no longer here and Who's going to have them, and how are they? Where are they going to live, and where are they going to be? And you know, all of those ridiculously annoying questions that maybe I just should not have to worry about. Are you thinking about that? Yes, I do. Because I'm getting older. You're getting older, and you've always been, I think, interested, as indeed I am, in 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 mortality. In what? In the daily bread. Yeah. The final word. You want me to? You want me to read to, uh, the this um, quote from Bertrand Russell that I'm that I'm using in the ballet that I used in Principles of Uncertainty, but that I we want to also have spoken text and read in the ballet. I, I think my, the answer to your question is yes, I do. <laughs> so <clears throat> I think he wrote this around 1900 or something like that. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation be safely built. He didn't believe in, you know, he didn't believe in God, by the way. Of course, that's, that's obvious. Wow. <clears throat> it's amazing. And I love that he says the unyielding despair. I mean, because, because you have to be an idiot not to have despair. And, and, and then it's what do you do? You know, how do you, how do you, what is the fabric of this life that you, that you make? You know, uh, Myra, I can't remember, and I wonder if you have it handy. There's, there's one line you've always loved of Darwin. Do you have it with you? I do have it with me, Paul. It was a quote he wrote in a letter to a friend of his when he was working on a, on a book. And this is the quote. But I am very poorly today and very stupid and hate everybody and everything. One lives only to make blunders. Oh, it's so fantastic. It's so fantastic. I have it I, my wall also. Next to Winston Churchill, who says, never, never, never give up. And then there's Darwin saying, we live only to make blunders. I, I, I want you to take a picture at some point of that wall, because I want people to see what you see when, when you look up these quotations that, you know, I was mentioning the Proust quotation about the umbrella. But these, these, uh, these words sort of, they, they, they're signposts. They are. That's what I hold on to. I hold on to, you know, thoughts of other people. And I, by the way, I have a, a the postcard of Kafka on my wall, which I've typed 
the sentence that you that you told me. Tell me. There's hope, but not for us. That there is hope, but not for us. Oh, you have that. All day long. Oh God. <laughs> well, I'm 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 glad to to you know offer offer um, how should I say optimism and consolation at the same time. But you know we were talking about mortality, but then there is also the incredible joy you have of being a grandmother. Beyond, the joy I have of being a mother and adoring my children, and then the joy of seeing that my children have children, which is some kind of extraordinary, epic leap into another part of the world. And to watch children and to watch a human being develop and learn is something extraordinary. So I'm I'm completely amazed at how happy and how what, what uh, wonderful it is. Did it take you by surprise? doesn't take me by surprise, it just takes me completely. I, I mean, I, I, I feel it. Every time I see you, you seem just so happy that you might be going up into the countryside, um, up north, to, to, to visit this new life. This new life. That's exactly this life. This, this new life. This new life. This new life that that doesn't yet quite think of Darwin and doesn't yet quite think of all the things we've been evoking. I want to. I want so to. Uh, we have a year and a half of not speaking. It's an ex- actually it's an extraordinary moment in in our lives because everybody we know speaks to everybody, and I think well this this human being does not speak, and how do you communicate? And what is the essential of life here, which is about unconditional, you know, goes back in a full circle. But lack of language is an extraordinary moment in time also to look at and silence. Well, you know that the word infant uh, literally means someone who can't speak. So an infant in inf, the fun, I'm, I'm trying to remember the Greek, but I don't remember, phatic, when you are emphatic, uh, uh, and it's the same origin as infant. Infant is a inability um, insofar, I mean, you're talking about this inability as an ability obviously, but infant literally means before before speech. Mm -hmm. Which is quite quite magnificent. I'm a little bit sorry that, I mean, of course I'm hoping (laughs) to speak with uh, this baby, but uh, it's it's kind of amazing. I wonder whether language starts uh, screwing things up. Well, uh, you, your, your relationship... Speak to each well, other. Yeah, well, well certainly language uh, does pose a, a number of problems. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, as we, as we end this, this call, which has been sheer joy for me, um, it brings me back full circle to how I met you, Myra. I met you when you had just illustrated the elements of, of style. And you were going to do something possibly at that point at the New York Public Library. One of the very first things I did more than a decade ago with you and the great Nico Muley, you said that when you were illustrating the elements of style, you heard music. And I asked you, you know, how long you had had that problem. And you said, well, that's what, what happened. I, I heard music and and how about we do something with music? Or I said, let's do something with music. And then you and Nico created this musical piece, nearly an opera, based on the elements of style. I'm wondering if you can recall for everybody overhearing our conversation what that was like for you and um, what you remember about it. I will simply say in closing that it was possibly one of my most joyous, happy memories of anything I've done professionally um, since, and it led to knowing you, which has been, and it continues to be one of the great, great pleasures of my life. Dito, Paul, I feel the same way about all of it, about the elements of style and that, that opera. I love that we call it an opera. It was only 32 minutes, and operas can be short, and knowing you that that it was completely the intersection of knowing and not knowing, of, have, of having a feeling coming up in you where you're singing the words of a book that you're illustrating, and then it becomes real. So I think that the from, from a leap of imagination to the real world, to things happening in the real world, I'm, I'm always amazed and, and uh, eternally delighted. And, but, but, but it was extraordinary because... You- we chose the the reading room of the library, which I think had never been used for music. The librarian said, 
this is the room. This is the room it has to be in. And it was clear, you know, I think that's, that the only guide you have is instinct, which is why I go back to saying, like, thinking too much is really dangerous, because you have your instincts, and the instincts really guide you. And, and, if, and if the instinct was, let's make an opera, and let's do it in this room, in the reading room where you're supposed to be silent, and let's use clattering teacups and saucers and running down the hall and climbing up a ladder. Yeah, let's have Isaac Mizrahi... Yes. be on an, on, an, on an egg beater and um, I can't remember all the other musicians. What, what was the name of the orchestra that Nico had? The Needless Word Orchestra? Well, the orchestra, the, the people who we were the, um, the counterpoint to the real musicians and I named them the Omit Needless Words Orchestra which is one of the sections that Strunk, uh, Strunk and White had in their book. Omit Needless Words. And again, you know, we're back to infant. We're uh, again back to um, something that might be prelapsarian, that might be before words. And that's why I, I so much loved that evening is because it was music, music, style put into music. Um, and now I'm singing songs for the, I'm making up songs for this child about her great-grandparents and her great-great-grandparents and how they burned potatoes in a little pan. And I think that that, of course, music to me is an incredibly important part of it, but also that when you are with, when you are in moments like that with a baby or with music or walking, you, you become yourself in the most wonderful way. And so, uh, I feel like I'm a baby, an old baby. Myra, Myra, my old baby. Um, what a joy. What a joy to, all I can say is, um, we touched the surface to be continued. Um, have a very good day. Have a good uh, rehearsal. We didn't talk about bridge, but we will another time. Another time. I send you much love. To you too, Paul. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Bye-bye, Myra. Criminal Broads is a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law, and I'm the host, Tori Telfer. I'm a true crime writer who started Criminal Broads after realizing that I was uncovering far too many out-of-control and terrifying stories about criminal women to fit in a single book. So, if you like stories about female cult leaders, con women, women who undergo <laughs> seven sessions of plastic surgery to avoid arrest for 14 years and 11 months... Uh, women who hung out with Bonnie and Clyde, or serious speculation about the deranged theory that Jack the Ripper was actually a woman, I think you'll like this podcast. Look for Criminal Broads on your favorite podcast listening app, or follow along at Instagram.com slash Criminal Broads, where I post a lot of photos so you can look deep into the eyes of some of the murderesses we'll be talking about. See you there! Thank you.